Welcome to the Art Podcast. Our show features conversations with Canadian recording artists. In each episode, our host, Tressa Levasseur, explores how background, influences, and personal journey shape the creative process. Every show features two original songs by the guest artist, so stick around to hear some great music. Today's episode features Juno Award-winning songwriter Leela Gilday, joining us from her home in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Wow, it is just great to be here with you. What a gift to get to spend some time together. I feel like we always see each other in crowded hallways at big events. In passing, in another life. Right? Or we have these like quick, like five minute moments in the context of something larger, but what a luxury to get this time together with you today. Must see. It's really, really nice to see you too, Tressa. It's nice to see you and it will only be topped by a hug someday in the future. <laughs> yes. Um, so are you ready to begin? Shall we just dive right into this interview? Absolutely. What is your earliest memory of music? I love this question. Um, I was raised in a very, very musical household. My Both my parents are great lovers of music and my father is also a musician. Um, I was raised um, with all kinds of music in my ears. Um, so I have two very distinct memories. I should say like three very distinct memories. One was that my favorite record was called The Instruments of the Orchestra and had two little characters, Birdie and Miss Something, who identified each instrument. And um, so by the time I was two years old, I could identify like, you know, all of the instruments of the Western classical orchestra, including, you know, bassoon and, and clarinet and soprano saxophone and like anything you could piccolo, like whatever you can think of. Um, and then the other memory, one of the other memories is um, being held by my parents at a drum dance and um, drum dances like we would go quite often whenever there was one um, drum dances would be at the community hall or community center and it would be packed and there would be you know up to 20 30 men drumming and singing and the power of that um, beat you know and the the and their united voices um, it's just like I can still feel it resonating through my body and um, and then the other one is just like bumming around in my living room, um, you know, probably in my favorite rubber boots and not much else <laughs> and listening to, um, the radio, listening to country music on the radio, like Patsy Cline and Hank Williams, like whatever was on CBC at the time. <laughs> Your first show outfit. <laughs> yeah. just rubber boots. Yeah. That's right. Um, tell me more about your parents being musicians. Were they in, did they approach music from a similar perspective or did they each come at it in a different way? No, um, my mom, um, you know, so she was raised in Delaney and then, um, went to residential school. And, um, I think she, like the first music that she really fell in love with, I think was the folk musicians like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan um, of the sixties and like really, really passionately fell in love with 
um, it was a heady time, right? Also in the early 1970s in, in Denenday, like it was a very, um, very heady political time. So my mom has always been an activist. And so music with a message has always really spoken to her. Um, and whereas my dad comes from uh, a different uh, school of thought, like he was, he's a settler from Southern Ontario and he was raised um although he was the first um, professional musician in his family. So, um, so he started, he went to music school and played classical trombone and played in the symphony, but he also put himself through university playing in big bands and swing bands and like really loved, um, you know, that, that dynamic music. And then as well as being a composer and falling in love with classical music and, and then also becoming a music teacher. And, and um, he subscribes to like the Kodai method. So uh, very sort of natural um, uh, learning for children and in music. Anyway, he, he was the one to bring, you know, the records of all the symphonies and introduced me to Glenn Gould when I was, you know, uh, in elementary school and, and gave us sort of the, and he also started like a, a six man folk singing group called the Gumboots. Um, <laughs> so, so very different musical um, palettes and musical approaches, but like my mom, my, my parents are my biggest fans and, uh, and same with my brother and my sister, because we're all musicians. So, um, it was just a, such a blessing to be raised in, in a household where music was so present and, um, and so valued. Well, you're just so immersed in so in, in a, a big, rich, like very many things in that, in that pond for you. Yeah. So one of the questions on here is what's the playlist of your childhood? But I would say that actually, if I was guessing that your upbringing was more of a shuffle. Yes, I would say <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, Beethoven and Schoenberg and uh, right alongside Hank Williams, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez and lots of Dennett drumming drummers from all over the place. And yeah, like very, very diverse swing, big band swing music, you know, and jazz, all of the jazz greats. And then as I as I grew as a child and developed my own um, tastes, you know, my first three cassettes were Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, and Whitney Houston. So, <laughs> so I really, and I was like, holy crap, like listen to these voices and the, um, the power and the, the depth, the, the many faceted, you know, and just, I was so drawn by those voices. And so, yeah, that kind of, that was the, that was the little like stew that I was brewing in back then it, it's interesting because you chose like your first cassettes are all r&b soul like very classic r&b soul which is you've named almost every other genre yeah that you were exposed <laughs> to so really it makes sense to me that in finding your own path like that you would wind up there yeah what was your learning journey like how did you I guess it was part of that immersion did you take lessons or um, well, we were raised singing, my brother and my sister and I, all three of us were raised singing in our household. So just, you know, from the time we were 
babies, nursery rhymes and all of that. And then um, as a child, like a little, as little children, we sang at home and in the choir at school and in music class. My dad was also our music teacher. So, um, which led to some complicated bullying, but, (laughs) and those, those children of music teachers, he was quite strict back then. Now he's so easygoing, but he was very strict. I just remember being like in grade two and these kids, this grade six boys coming up and pushing me down on the playground, being like, your dad is a jerk. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> and I was like, what's a jerk? <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I digress. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Um, wow. I, I, you know, it's interesting to have a parent that's a teacher. We're going to move into this community engagement piece of the conversation now. And like he had a gift and a, and a craft and a talent that he nurtured and he, he invested in, and then he took it and he shared it in with people who are growing up learners. And I wonder for you about how, when you are sharing or connecting with people in that way, using music, not necessarily educationally, but like, yeah, spreading what you have. Is there, is there something about that that is the most passionate point for you of, of entry into that process? Yeah. Um, as you were uh, forming that question, I was really like images were coming to me and um, I think I'd just like to take a step back and um, talk about, so, so my dad moved to the North for my mom um, because he came here on a trip when he was, you know, 23 or something like that. And, and they met and fell madly in love. And then he decided to move up here, but there wasn't a lot of work for trombone players and composers up here. So he decided that uh, he'd like to teach music and in doing so has really impacted like generations of people coming out of the North. I know there's lots of uh, people who have pursued, you know, music at least as an ed- in, you know, as educators or uh, as professional musicians because of the love of music that he instilled in them. And in kind of a similar pathway Um, I've embraced my role as a role model. And um, so, so that the kind of when I talk, when I think about community engagement, I not only think about my, because I I do workshops with youth sometimes or with young songwriters. Um, I've uh, mentored lots of young uh, musicians. I'm particularly interested in um, you know, mentoring young Indigenous songwriters and um, people who, um, yeah, not, I mean, Dene songwriters specifically, but it also can, can there's a broad um, group of people there. Um, but the other part is not necessarily about music in particular, um, but also just being a role model in the sense that um, I had an experience probably 15 years ago, 13 or 14 years ago, where I was playing for at at that time, Aboriginal Day Live here in Yellowknife. And I looked down and in the front of the stage, there was about six young, like 10 year old 
girls, Dene girls, all like with their eyes, stars in their eyes, looking up at me, you know, and I was, um, you know, I, I had a great time. I had a great show, but they really struck me at that point because none of them are, were, or are musicians, but to them, what I represented was something, um, outside of limits, you know, outside of limitations. And, and so when I think about community engagement, I think about, yes, I share that gift of like storytelling, love of music, um, representing authentic voices and getting people to step forward and recognize the value of their own voice. But also in a greater sense, I, um, I'm empowering young people to see themselves outside boundaries. They may not even necessarily recognize are there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, they're seeing outside the limit, but they're also seeing in you a reflection of themselves at a future point. Exactly. Like it's not just seeing what's outside the limitations. It's seeing themselves. Exactly. Projecting self and seeing that reflected back at them. Oh, I might cry. It's a very beautiful way you put that. Um, And that answers the share a memorable moment. (laughs) But what I want to ask you about is um, the workshop piece that you were just talking about, the mentorship and workshop piece. I have a couple of questions around that. What makes for a great workshop or community engagement event for you? What, what are the, the factors that take it from just ho-hum, humdrum, regular run-of-the-mill to like, this was really well put together and meaningful? Um, that has all depended on the preparedness of the presenter. <laughs> so, um, because I, if I'm not from a community, I can't go in and raise interest in in me giving a workshop to strangers or um, so really the, the times that have been really effective is when a presenter has been like, Hey, here's this songwriter from this place. Um, and I think, and, and gathers people together that have similar interests or they feel would benefit. And those people come with a, with an open heart and a, and a vested interest. Um, otherwise it's uh, you know, it's just a moment in time and, and there's no, like I come prepared um, to a workshop to share a certain, like my journey to share some tools that I've learned, some knowledge and some wisdom that have been shared with me. And so the great workshops that I've experienced has been when people have also come prepared to share uh, their journey and their tools and um, what they what they would like to bring forward. Huh, that's interesting. It's like a, a relational piece as opposed to a presentational. Yeah. Um, so there's a workshop, that's community engagement kind of thing. Let's flip the script to the other kind of workshop, the one that we have played together. So it's a festival and there's this workshop stage and they've put five different acts together on this stage <laughs> to, to present a workshop. Please describe your favorite title of that. Like, what is your dream, like, stage that you want to be on? Is there one? And what is the one that you're like, please not that one? <laughs> <laughs> mm, that is a very good question. And I wish I had a couple days to think about that. <laughs> um, my dream workshop. 
women powerhouse voices through the ages. <laughs> and it would just be straight, like maybe they're in spirit world or maybe they're not, but who have stood and used their voice to uh, talk about social justice, to like um, really talk about things that matter and shake the status quo up and, you know, like shake the foundations. And I just want to be on that stage and I'll just, I don't know what I have to bring, but I, I can sing a little bit. So <laughs> that's that well, my I, dream workshop. <laughs> I love that. That's actually an amazing title for a workshop, shake the foundations. That's a great title for right. a social justice music workshop. Yeah. I'll be stealing that. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> Uh, but presenters who are watching this, please note. Um, yeah. And then the workshop that I don't want to be in, these Indigenous people present exactly what you would expect them to present. <laughs> How's that? That is a terrible title for a workshop. Yes. And I would not want to go to it either. Yeah. yeah. Prescriptive. Let's see. Uh this workshop would be like settlers version of indigenous people. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like I find it, I love that you said that actually, because it really shines a light on how identity is something that you're both like deeply immersed in inhabiting, sharing, uplifting, broadcasting all those things and at the same time you're like but please don't use it as like a some kind of like too tight bodysuit for me like because then it's constrictive and it's externally imposed yeah and I think that I mean I'm glad that you noticed that <laughs> in my jokingness like I alluded to something that we as Indigenous performers experience a lot which is a very prescriptive attitude to what we bring to the table and indigenous music is just music made by indigenous people. And there's really nothing else that, um, you know, you can say that would describe it more accurately. Um, what the artist chooses to use, what influences, what genre, what tools they choose to tell their own reality to share that story is up to the artist. I can't even imagine. I mean, my closest analogy would be like the workshop that I never want to play is a bunch of girls whose music had not the, the girl workshop, girls with guitars. I'm like, please shoot me now. I don't want to play that. What do we have in common? That's not even, you're not even thinking about a topic. Yeah. <laughs> you just have seen a bunch of people with certain equipment and you're like, okay, those people. Yeah. Well, what? Like, yeah. Last I checked the calendar, it was the 21st century. But anyway, I probably shouldn't be getting this way on this podcast. Please edit that out. Thank you so much, dear editor. Ha ha ha, he says. Okay, let's move on, shall we? Um, Just before we do, can yeah, you, okay. I, just, because I just had to turn my fan on. Can you hear that? Is that going to be distracting? Yeah, I, I confess that I am wearing short shorts. Look very well put together on the top, but I'm in short dress. Yeah, I would not. Is it hot there? 
It's hot and I'm perimenopausal. It's, I'm a, it's a combination. Per- I'm perimenopausal too. It's not even hot here. I'm just That's like- the workshop stage of our dreams. <laughs> perimenopausal women drop truth bombs on everyone. Featuring Lila and Tressa at the end. I want there to be a lot more people in that workshop because it, nobody talks about this shit. Like they, you, you don't hear about it. And it's like, oh, it doesn't exist, you know? And traditionally we'd have ceremonies, you know, bringing you into your menses and then bring you out of your menses. But that is not happened now. And it's like, you know, because everybody, everybody wants to, is, is competing over how youthful you can look all the time. And like, that's like this fallacy of never ending youth. Um, It's like, oh, this menopause thing doesn't exist. Like it's shameful almost, you know? So anyway, I really, I think it'd be great to have more of a conversation in the general public about it. Well, it's interesting because you, I feel like earlier on you identified sort of young, very young women, like the 10 to the tweens, mm-hmm. shall we say, mm-hmm. as um, a group that you really love to work with. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that women of our age, I'll just lump us together. I'm pretty sure we're fairly we're close. Pretty similar, yeah. I would go to that to talk about the real things and talk about that shift and and learn with each other in a relation relational way. Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah. How old were you when you first wrote your first song? I think I was eleven. Did it have a title? I think, no, no, sorry. I think I was 13. I think it was a heartbreak song and it was like a crush that never happened. I, I don't remember the song. Crushed by your crush. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crushed by your crush. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, when you're young, I think that's like the most pressing topic is love and or lack of love or lost love or being so in love. That's, you know, we're driven by our hormones. So um, yeah, all of those things I think are very, um, when you're writing songs, you, you want to find inspiration and, um, and those are very big things that are, you know, in your daily experience. So that's naturally what people tend to write about. Totally. And it's also a way of separating yourself from being a child and moving into being an adult is figuring out that whole family of things. What about when you first performed? Like, when did you first start that aspect of your journey? That was when I was eight years old. And um, yeah, I, my first solo performance. So I had performed with choirs, you know, since I was five or something like that but my first solo performance outside of my school, because don't get me wrong. Like I was always in starring roles in the school play musical, usually as the witch. I don't know why, but it is the best part though. It is the best part. It's way better than like the ingenue. Yes. Um, But my first serious performance was at my local folk festival, which I actually just played at two weeks ago. Oh no, a month ago um, for the 25th time or something. Um, but the, when I was eight years old, it was my first performance 
there was, I think 500 people there. It was very daunting. And my dad played the piano and the guitar for me. I think I sang two songs. I only remember the one though, uh, which was one tin soldier. Listen, children, to the story. That's the first song of our workshop. Go on. Go about a kingdom on a mountain and the valley folk below. <laughs> We're really actually trying to sing on Zoom together. Lula, you know better. <laughs> oh, love it. I'm sure there was not a dry eye on the field that day. Gosh, I was really, really, I loved it. That was when I fell in love with performing. And it's, I think it's amazing also that you're recalling that your first song that you performed was a very political song and a very speak truth to what is happening. So your mom must have just been like, I'm sure that she, I'm sure that she and my dad selected it together specifically. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they were. <laughs> my mom made me new moccasins for that performance. And then she had been traveling and brought back a dress from Paris for me. And because uh, she is an environmental and indigenous rights activist. And she was um, over there. I think she was, I think, for the World Conservation Union in Geneva. Anyway, she got me this beautiful dress with like puff sleeves. And here I, so here I was on stage with my like beautiful puff sleeve dress and then my moccasins and then sport socks. <laughs> that was the ensemble. <laughs> Were they ankle height? Yeah, or like- yeah. Ankle heights. No, like slightly above the ankle. Uh-huh. I'll, send you I'll send you a photo. I don't know how that slipped by my mom, but anyway. <laughs> I really love that image. And I, in that image of seeing you in your puff sleeves with your, you know, your moccasins singing this song that's like just so much about like the world becoming a better place. Mm-hmm. You know what I just saw in my mind? It, it, not only are those little girls standing in front of the stage watching you seeing themselves married in the future, but when you look at them, and now I'm really going to cry, there must be part of you that's seeing yourself. Married <laughs> in the oh my God, Tressa. You, yes, absolutely. I think I just covered this in my therapy session, <laughs> but, but yes, that's so true. Uh huh. Yeah. Did you have a role model? Someone that, that you looked up to when you were a kid? I mean, I had a lot of role models, um, musically, uh, definitely any, any like strong, powerful voiced person, woman who, uh, who just like told it like it was, including Buffy. I thought Buffy was pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I was, the, the role models that I saw around me um, were more like my family, my aunties, my uncles, my, my parents too, um, my grandparents, and just the people that really gave me everything, all the support that I needed to grow and when I was a kid, I believed I could be everything. Like I really thought I was going to be a singer, but also a lawyer, but also an astronaut. Like I thought that I could do all of these things at the same time. There is still time. I think that ship has sailed. my friend. (laughs) There might be still time to be a lawyer if I wanted to. 
Right. I don't, but uh, but probably not an astronaut. <laughs> you never know. It is possible. <laughs> right. Okay, fine. It's too late. Uh, we'll discuss this later at our workshop. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so your first song was a crush song. When that's to 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 put your first song out is one thing, but when did you? F- what, at what point in your journey did you feel like you were starting to emerge as a songwriter? Yeah, that was a very separate part of my journey um, because songwriting was something that I came to kind of, I guess, relatively late. Um, you know, the songs that I wrote as a teenager were not for performing, like I would never perform them. Um and when I was, I think, 12 or 13, I decided that I wanted to, or maybe it was actually 14, I decided I wanted to pursue, pursue music as a career and I wanted to study opera. So I started taking um, formal voice lessons and learned the canon and like um, auditioned for music school. And then I got in, I went to music school at University of Alberta. I was 17 at that time and I was really young, but Mm -hmm. I graduated when I was like 21. And then I moved to Toronto for a boy after, after that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And at that time I thought I'm just going to take this year and hiatus and then go and start my master's. I was hoping to go to McGill um, in, in classical voice. And that year was just the absolute, it was a catalyst for huge change in my life. Um, I just discovered myself and that the music that I was singing um, wasn't representing like the stories, the authentic stories inside and, and the, you know, the stories of the North, who I was identity is such a huge, huge thing in your twenties. Like you really, um, especially as an artist, you're so introspective. And I was like, what's important to me? Well, you know, my, my Dene family is important to me. Who I am as a Dene woman is important to me. And I'm not hearing any of that in the librettos that I'm singing, mm-hmm. Never mind authentic women's voices, but that's for another day. Um, so, so yeah, that's when I really came to songwriting as a, something that I, that I wanted to pursue. Um, and, and again, I mean, the songs that I wrote back then a lot, there were a lot of love songs, but there were, and heartbreak songs that boy never worked out, but, (laughs) but there were also, you know, songs about um, the uranium mine on Great Bear Lake, like on the Satu, um, my family's uh, territory. Um, And like songs about the North um, Great Slave Shore, which is uh, Great Slave Lake or Sambake. Um, is where I grew up so and these sorts of songs were what really motivated me to you know pursue this journey so I started like playing open stages I taught myself how to like play the guitar that year and um and started playing like the free times cafe and like that was my first gig in Toronto also oh the guitar. yeah (laughs) yes yeah, I loved those open stages at that time. And it really helped me to, because I had been performing for a very long time at that point, but not my own music. So this was like a new venture for me. And I really started to, um, you know, write quite a, quite a few songs and um, and perform them way more often. And yeah, that's how that kind of 
went down. Amazing. I love that story. And you've described like, it's almost like that's the answer to the question of when did you first perform your songs on stage or when did you first start writing? Right. It's like, there's this, this jump from diary writing to like, oh, I'm really writing something that's like needs to be out there. Yeah. And I think that's a question that we all come back to as artists. Every time I put out a record, I question not my own voice, but is this something that I need to share? And that's where I find the real authenticity in, in like whether this song is, you know, whether people need to hear this song or if it's just me like processing something. So how do you decide that? That's a good question. I've never questioned myself on how I decide. Uh oh. <laughs> never mind. I gotta, talk, I, took it back. I gotta talk to my therapist about that. Just. <laughs> She's just next door. Didn't you just come from her? She's waiting for you. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of great tunes that people write that um that never see the light of day and should be shared. But then I think for for yourself as like for myself as a songwriter, that's been part of the journey. Like what is it that's important that needs to be, what story needs to be told and how can I write that best song that, you know, that will represent that story and share it in a, an effective way. Here's a question. How has music, you're so intuitive that we're kind of moving through the questions without having necessarily ask them. Amazing. We're just kind of like weaving through this this plan here, this map, how has music helped you overcome a difficult moment in your life? Um, Music has helped me in all of the darkest times of my life. It's a way of processing things, but also it's a way of connecting directly to your heart. And I, I think that music, not only my music, like just like me playing and sharing, that's been very empowering and uplifting but also other people's music has impacted me in such a profound way um you know I can think of many times that uh I was feeling anxiety or feeling down or feeling or facing you know like quite honestly I'm right now in one of the greatest challenges of my life ever and I rely on music you know almost daily to uplift me to give me energy to um, bolster me and to um, soothe me so yeah I think it's I mean I'm totally biased but it's one of the most powerful mediums I think it's it has the ability to connect people around the world and to save lives there's this study these scientists in Europe they studied the wood of a variety of Stradivarius and old violins that have been made hundreds of years ago. And they discovered that the more that these instruments were played, the more the molecules within the wood became aligned in complex and beautiful patterns. Wow. And that in fact, the molecules even occasionally aligned in ways that were a form of molecular signature of the player. They, this was their, their theory. Oh. Oh, sorry, I just got chills. <laughs> I just got goosebumps. Sometimes when you're feeling sad, all you want to do is dive in the more sad to make yourself feel like you're belonging in the place that you are. That's beautiful. Yeah, I can, I can really 
um, say that one of the other cool things and maybe you've experienced this as um, as a singer is that um, daily or weekly practice of singing has is almost like a yoga practice um, be, or a meditation practice because you know you're you get so um, into like sitting in the music that you lose yourself like your ego is gone and I'm I'm just like breathing thinking about breathing thinking about producing the sound thinking about the meaning of the words you know feeling that ebb and flow of the piece um, it's like this whole universe that's not to do with Leela like and that and that is also kind of related to how I feel about my voice being a gift from the creator so that it's not really about me. Like it's like Leela Gilday is like this person, but this whole thing is, is something that I just facilitate. Like I'm the channel. So that's been a really powerful, that's had a powerful impact in my life too, to have that practice. So interesting. We've gone from that horrible workshop stage being like constrained by someone else's version of your identity to that sense of rootedness and standing in the power of your own identity to the possibilities that music and specifically that singing provides of actually transcending personal identity and, and just the state of being that one gets to in those magical moments. I know them well. I miss performing for live people. I had one show, uh, like I said, last month, and uh, that was just amazing to feel that energy coming back to me from the from the audience. Like that is, that's a thing. That's a visceral thing. Molecular. It's, it's a real, real mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, what is a piece of advice that you've received in your life that you've never forgotten? That's a very good question. <laughs> I've received I've received so much advice in my life and I and I I think like I can't think of a sound bite uh-huh. but I can think of people that have given me lots of advice and helped to guide me and with without whom I wouldn't be here um I think of um my old drama teacher Terry Shays Green that um you know, he passed away actually maybe 10 years after graduated high school. Um, and, but I remember him just being, um, so passionately committed to the work and that I, I learned that that's really what it takes to, even though he was just a high school drama teacher, you know, he like for our production, for our yearly production, he would put pull out all the stops one year we as a class collectively rewrote a like a, a stage play for Pink Floyd the wall and I played like the mother <laughs> um just really what I didn't what I haven't forgotten from his him is just like the the level of commitment that really gives you wings you know if you are able to um stand with your arms um in a t like this is one of the work work um warm-ups that he had us do he said 
if you stand there and um, you feel like the heaviness pulling, just think light. And he said, you will be surprised at how much longer your body is able to, um, to hold your arms up simply because of the thought. So the impact of like really believing, really, really being passionately committed and what that frees up, like the, the spiritual and emotional and um, even physical resources that frees up to come to you. And, and you have kept that with you. Like you have, you are very passionately dedicated to your path. It's obvious in everything you do. Not to fangirl here, just a mild moment of fangirl. <laughs> Love it. Um, we're entering the, the final portion of our conversation today, titled Fun Questions to End With. Um, do you have a hidden or an unknown talent unrelated to music that we should all know about? Oh, God. <laughs> that bad, huh? Not really. I'm like pretty average at everything else. <laughs> I mean, like, like, I don't, you know, I love to, I love to like do yoga. I love reading. I love to read books. I'm a very fast reader. Me too. What is, what's on your shelf right now? What do you, what's on your bedside table? Right now, I just finished something called The Lost Apothecary. Um, and then I actually just got an, a book through Raven Reads called uh, The Seed Keeper. Um, so I'm excited to start that. And then I literally just finished two Jody Piku Piku books yes. because I was on the holiday and I, I I read fast. So <laughs> for like a junk read, I shouldn't I shouldn't cast stones. Uh, for like an an easy read, she does a lot of like amazing research. This one was about Egyptology, and I learned a lot. Anyway, so I make my way through a lot of books. I love indigenous authors. So I'm, I'm like committed to not committed to, I'm always excited to read like a new indigenous author, but my favorite author is Eden Robinson, um, who just last year released the last book of her trickster series. I just finished it. I waited at the library for so long. I finally got it. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. So what a great series. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like I love cooking, but it's not like I'm going to enter any food competitions, but yeah, no, no real hidden talent. I can do this with my finger. <laughs> That's pretty good. What is that in shadow puppet? What, what creature does that make? I don't know. I also don't. <laughs> it's only this finger though. It's only this one. <laughs> that I cannot do. I'm not even double jointed. That is a hidden <laughs> talent. It's hidden. All right. But we'll all be looking for it. <laughs> I'm reading a book. I'll, I'll give you a tip on a book by uh, an Aboriginal author from Australia that I'm reading right now. That's not an easy read, but is like very good, but hard to get into. But then once you're in, you're in. And it's called The Swan Book by Alexis Wright. Do you know this author? No, I don't, but I'll I'll pick it up right yeah, away. Yeah, it's it it takes a bit and then you're like, oh, it's post-apocalyptic. It's Ooh. oh yes, it's very good. Paint me a picture of the first concert that you attended, like 
that, yeah, pay, not, not like with your, well, you've already painted that picture. You've told me about going to a drum gathering with your family and being held by them. But like, I'm thinking the teen years, thinking teen Leela. I want to know a little bit more about teen Leela's concert going. Well, we, um, I mean, I was born and raised in Yeldonife, so didn't really have a lot of musicians coming through um, other than our local, you know, musicians. And, uh, and then of course, like drum dances are not really like concerts. They're just like community events where everybody dances, every, you know, whoever is, is currently drumming or learning to drum plays. Like there's a, there's a leader, like there's a, a lead singer, but it's, it's not the same as a concert. Um, the first concert I attended, I think it was Doug and the Slugs. They came to Yellowknife. They came to Yellowknife. And so I went like, this is, it's not like I was like flipping through the pages right. of now magazine. Yeah, exactly. No, it's like Doug and the Slugs was coming. So everybody went. So I went to see Doug and the Slugs and then I I ran into them years later at the Bella Coola Music Festival before I think I think Doug passed away right he's uh, anyway I I had I had ran into them when I was playing that uh, music festival and I was like I think you were my first music concert and they were like oh great awesome <laughs> anyway um okay we're we're almost at the end here if this interview was a show okay and and we're heading up towards the last song what's the last song that you leave people with usually and why do you choose that what's the note that you oh yeah so usually my closer it's shifted throughout the years obviously new songs come into rotation I like to leave people like, like on this note, I'm like, yeah, like that's where I like to leave people. Um, so right now my most um, favorite closer is called Kenta Natseju. And it's a song that is about healing our relationships within our indigenous families. Actually, it means taking it back. That's what you means um and the last note is like and i hold it for like 30 seconds Ooh, yeah <laughs> that's right <where> yes <laughs> i like to leave people feeling fired up you know um because there's a lot of ups and downs in my concerts and um there's a lot of reflective songs, but some fun songs. And uh, yeah, I, I just feel like um, leaving people with that song um, gets them not just in a good mood and, and like up, but also like gets them thinking about things too. What an absolute pleasure it's been to spend this, this time with you today. I cannot say enough about this lovely moment of getting to know you. And picturing your puffy sleeved sports sock <laughs> moccasin wearing earnest child self. Super earnest. I was such a sensitive child. Oh my God. My my first big solo was 
it was a school concert, but we toured the other schools and I sang, I got the solo of Celine Dion's Une Colombe, like the, the Pope song. It was that time. You know the song. Yeah. I probably also had full puffy sleeves. Probably sports socks, not moccasins. Not moccasins, just winter boots. Or maybe the rubber boots that you wore all by themselves early in your life. Tressa, Masicho, thank you so much for um, connecting all the dots here for me. And you're just such a wonderful host and, uh, and you know, a great person. So I'm a bit of a fangirl too. Well, we shall <laughs> fangirl out in our perimenopausal workshop coming to festival stages across the land. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we got to think of a good name for that workshop. Uh-huh. It's not what yours was. What was? Shake the Foundations. Shake the Foundations. It's, that, that, it's not that. No. What about all one word? Sit down. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's good. I like that one. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks, Leila. Merci. Blame it on me, though there is no mistake. The look in your eyes is all I can take. Fall on your
Thanks for listening to the ARC podcast. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please take a look at our show notes. Our producer and engineer is Tim Frazier of Murdoch Entertainment. Our host is Tressa Levasseur. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for making this podcast possible. And thanks to you for tuning in. My dear mother, I wish you well. I can't stand to see you cry. So I have this distant hell. And I wipe the tears from my eyes. My sweet brother, will I see again? There's so many things I long to say. Life has dealt you a bad hand. And all I can do is Turn back.